You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics, in all honesty. I'm your host, Maris Young. Thank you so much, Regina, for being here today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you for many reasons. But before we get into all of that, can you take a moment to to tell us who is Regina? Ooh, that's a, such a good question. Such a timely question. <laughs> I just spent some time with a group of phenomenal women this past weekend out in LA. Ooh. And we talked a lot about who we really are, because what oftentimes happens is people ask us when they first meet us, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And we tend to define ourselves by what we do. So I led them through this exercise where for 25 minutes, they had to write down what they do well. And so, because what you do well kind of makes up who you are, like it's what you tend to mm-hmm. be drawn to and what you enjoy. And so I, Regina, am a person who arranges flowers well. <laughs> I read mm-hmm. books uh, like nobody's business. I enjoy hosting people in my home. In my cozy apartment home, I enjoy travel because I like showing up as the person that I'm going to be when I travel. I get to parent a 19-year-old boy, man, young adult, whatever they're (laughs) calling them these days. (laughs) I am a newlywed. I've been married for just over a year, and we are empty nesters. I am a connector, a developer, and a storyteller. So I'm a lot of things. A lot of things. A lot of things. I often tell people that I'm a Jackie of all trades. You know, they say Jack of all trades. I'm a Jackie Mm. of all trades. And I'm really realizing I need to define that and what that actually is. Because people look at me funny when I say that. But I, I realize I'm saying it because I don't want to be put in a box. Mm. You know, so I'm all those things. Have you always felt that way, or is this a new season for you and and starting to accept that you're more than just one thing? It's um, probably been for most of my life that I knew that I was more than what I did, how I performed in a class, how if whether I made the cheerleading team or or not, mm-hmm. uh, whether I had a boyfriend or not whether I was the best at X, Y, and Z, I've always known that I was more than the the role or the job that I had, but only in this most recent season have I gotten confident enough to say that I'm more than the, those things. So mm. I think some of it has been getting older. Some of it is what I've walked through. Um, some of it is just fatigue. I'm tired of, tired of doing it the old way. Mm-hmm. and needing to do it this new way. So, yeah, it's it's fairly new. I'm trying it trying it on. It feels good, you know. It's different. It's definitely different. Yeah, I think we're so pressured to to pick just one thing, you know, just in the question itself like, "Oh, what is it that you do?" um and and people are usually looking for some kind of career title or company name or some adjective singular mm-hmm. to to really pigeonhole people and and to get a sense of 
how someone identifies, but I think we have to open our our imaginations more and and open our perspectives wide enough so that we can allow people to be all of who they are and not just what they do right um career wise and i used to think that it was for malintent but i do actually hmm. think people i think people at their core are are really trying to connect mm-hmm. because the faster i can find something in common with you the more readily we can connect and have a a, a com- more comfortable conversation right, right. so if I find out that you do real estate or you enjoy flipping a home or you enjoy baking, if that's what you do for work, then we can start talking about that if that's something we both enjoy. But right. the harder, deeper questions are, you know, that I'm a lot of things. I, I enjoy a lot of things. I, And sometimes because I'm a woman, those things change <laughs> from week to week or month to month, depending upon, you know how I'm growing or what's growing me at that time. So I do, and that's a, that's a new thing for me too, is this idea mm-hmm. that people are doing the best that they can and they're doing what, what they've grown up with or what they know, what feels comfortable, what seems easy. And so then I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to be that way. So I'm introducing myself in a different way now. But I do genuinely think that people are trying to connect when they ask that question. I'd have to agree with you there. And I think in this new way of introducing yourself that you're starting to embark on in sharing many different things about yourself that actually provides more ways for people to connect with you. Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, I'm a wife, I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you're someone who arranges flowers well. You're someone who <laughs> loves to read. You know, So all of those things mm-hmm. are so they're so diverse and then they also they spark conversation just because it's out of the norm to hear someone respond to that question in that way so right it shocks I like people that. i feel like i need to start that yeah i'm and sure it, it does and it shocks people a little bit but what it does also do beyond the shocking is it gives them permission to share something that they might not normally share which breaks out of mm. the out of the box. You know, I think we really get to connect when we break outside of the box of, I do this from nine to five, and this is what I do. And this is how I'm identified. Because sometimes I'm not doing really great at the things that I'm identified by. I'm not always the best wife. I'm not always the best mother. I'm not always the best book reader, you know? And so if Mm -hmm. I'm only identifying myself by a handful of things, or one or two things, then I can set myself up to feel like a failure uh, in those ways mm. because those are the things that I focus on or present to the world. And so it requires some vulnerability, right. but this gives me permission to be good at a lot of things and connect in a lot of ways with a lot of different people and gives them permission to do the same. Right. Well, so in your introduction, you mentioned that you are a newlywed Mm-hmm. Um, so congratulations. You said you've Thank been just you. been married for just over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me more about that because you have had an interesting journey to to finding this relationship. Yes, I definitely have. 
so something I can say without shame is that this is my third marriage. And mm. I never thought I wanted to be married at all. I went to an all-white high school. I'm a Black woman. And when the only people around you are white, they're attractive. I mean, well, the hormones made them attractive, right? <laughs> like, I was just, I was boy crazy. And um, lived in an environment where white men uh, were what I was drawn to. Mm. And because so many of them really liked me and liked who I was, uh, they were often drawn to me, but would want to only want to be my friend because it was kind of taboo to be the one white guy dating the one black girl. Like, mm. I just can't tell you how many conversations I had where you're really great, but, and so I just started to think and tell myself this story that I would never get married even though I think deep down I probably wanted to be. Yeah. But the first time I got married, I was married to a white uh, white man who pursued me like crazy. We worked together and he pursued me and never had anyone treat me that way before. And uh, we, were, we would have almost been married for 10 years when he was injured in uh, Iraq. He was a Marine when I met him. And... They deployed after everything that happened with 9-11. He was an infantryman and he was driving a Humvee and the IED exploded under the vehicle that he was driving mm -hmm. and killed three instantly. And then he and the other person in the passenger seat uh, were the only survivors. My husband died about nine months later. Wow. And in the overwhelming grief, um, which, man, I wish I could get on a tour bus and just drive around the country to all the hurting women and just talk to them, look them in the eye and hold them at the shoulders and hug their necks and tell them, just really wait, wait before you attach yourself to another person. But I did not do that. And the people who were close to me attempted to say it to me that I should wait, but um, they just didn't feel confident enough to just basically right. <laughs> lock me up, I guess. <laughs> But I wasn't, I wasn't healthy enough, and I ended up in a second marriage that was very unhealthy. It was unhealthy before I married him. I saw all the signs from, I would say, our second or third date. I knew that I shouldn't have been in a relationship with this person because he wasn't healthy enough to be mm -hmm. a good catalyst in my life for healing. And I just didn't want to be alone. So I was in that marriage for eight years, doing everything in my Regina power that I could to make it work. And, and that one ended in divorce. It was the right thing for me to do, uh, for a lot of reasons, but mainly because I had completely sacrificed myself mm. to make this other person happy and nothing I ever did was good enough. And so I took a break from dating. I did date a little bit in between. I kind of little rebellious picks and people that I think I knew from the beginning weren't good matches for me that wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, flat out told me I'd never want to be married again, but I still wanted mm. to date them and see if I could change their mind. So I hadn't completely grown up and matured. And then finally I hit this space where it was like, I like me. I like this about me. I'm okay being by myself. And if I'd never meet a man again, 
I'm okay with that. And then it seemed I found myself around women who kept Mm -hmm. kind of pushing the issue. People I trusted um, that were asking me about, well, what if, what, what about? And so I ventured into the world of online dating, (laughs) which I said I would never do. (laughs) And that was an adventure. I have plenty of stories about that, but I was just about to quit the online dating adventure, if you will, Mm -hmm. doing air quotes around that word, by the way, Uh, when I was matched with my now husband. We matched on a Wednesday and went out on a Friday. Then we saw each other again the next morning, went out. He drove back over to meet me for breakfast the next morning. And then he drove back over again the following evening uh, for dinner. So we saw each other for a Friday night date, a Saturday morning date, and a Sunday night date. And over a year later, we were married. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sweet. So there's a lot there. And one thing that really sticks out to me is something that kind of goes back to our initial conversation, which stems around identity and, and identifying who we are in the adjectives or the activities that we describe to people. So in sharing your relationship journey, you mentioned you were effectively widowed, divorced, and now newlywed. And so I'm curious, Mm I, I know that people feel so much shame around divorce or or sadness, intense sadness around being widowed. And, and yes. often people will leave that out of their history. And so I'm curious as to how that has played, those mm-hmm. identities, how have they played a role in forming who you are today as a newlywed? Sure. It's a great question. There is a lot of shame. You know, when I created my profile, I did not share that, you know, whoever might match with me and take me on a date would, if they were to be my husband, that they would be lucky number three, you know, like I didn't tell all of that. It was only afterwards um, that we met or there seemed to be a connection Mm. that I might divulge that. And it was interesting, the response from different men and it took me a little while to realize that was more about them than it was right. about me because my story wasn't going to change. It didn't matter how many men I went out with. There was a there was a death and there was a divorce before you. So how you show up and you being the man shows up in that is really more about what they want to do with that and if they can see who I really am. But there was a lot of times, there were a lot of times where I carried a lot of shame about the widow being even widowed because people have the best intentions, but they really do layer on more hurt and complication to the grief that you're already experiencing without even thinking about it because people Mm -hmm. speak from what they think that they would do Mm -hmm. instead of personal experience. Uh, So, you know, someone comparing their, the death of a, a family pet or a grandparent or um, any story where it's not what you've experienced complicates the grief, which then in our culture, it just manifests itself in shame 
if you cannot really own your story. And so I was not an owner of my story. I have been a people pleaser uh, for a long time. I think age is helping me. I think some of the things that I've been walking through and as I connect mm-hmm. with more people who can relate to my story and see the healing and the, the help and the support that I'm able to offer them as I tell them my authentic <laughs> hot mess dumpster fire story, <laughs> I'm able to just, just leave all of the shame just behind. I stood in front of a group of 10 women this past weekend and I shared the things that I've shared with you here and then some of the more secretive things, I guess, things um, that are under lock and key. They're not secretive because they need to be, they're shameful, Right. but everyone can't be trusted with my story. And that was something that I learned the hard way. I, I really think that we have to know who can handle our story so that if I share with you something about even being in menopause, that's, that's another season that I'm in experiencing right now. I have friends who cannot understand or receive my feelings about this new season, which is difficult. There are some difficulties about it. And so instead of refusing to tell my story, I just know that I can't share Mm -hmm. that story with certain people, just like I couldn't share um, the story of, you know, being widowed the divorce and being remarried with other people. And there have been some amazing women who, you know, come in and out of my life, who've come in and out of my life, who have been like, so what? (laughs) And really I was like, oh, I don't have to defend myself as I'm explaining my story to you. Um, And and I really do think that a, a lot of that came from people who were older than me, who had seen plenty of things that didn't feel like they were in a place to judge, but then also explaining to me what godly grace is really about and reminding me about stories in the Bible where Jesus went to some of the people that the more privileged and upright seemingly put together people would have nothing to do with. And that in different seasons in all of our lives, but especially in mine, I can point to you where I've been the put together one and I've been the not so put together one. And, and I just, it's opened up my heart to people who um, feel like they have to have it all together to function in their life, that the ugly parts of their, their story should be hidden away in a box when actually that is what oftentimes connects us mm-hmm. with other people who are struggling and having a difficult time. Because when people know that they're not alone, they are more able to overcome and push past and push through and yeah. and um, rise up. Yes, I definitely agree with that. But I, I also realized too and recognize from personal experience that in the beginning, it can be so hard to, to take that first step towards being mm-hmm. vulnerable and, and really sharing what's going on mm-hmm. deep within. And so I'm curious about how you – came to find yourself in a space where you felt like you could share your story with people. What did that look like for you? I think I'm just tired. I was tired of doing all the work that I had to do Mm. 
to protect my story. <laughs> so there's the need to find out who the safe people are, which is always surprising. Sometimes you think the very safe people, are the pe- people that seem to be the safest, those aren't the safe people. And then there's some people who come out of nowhere and they're the, the best person for you to, to talk openly and candidly with. Um, so trying to find those people can be very difficult and overwhelming. And so years of that is exhausting and has been exhausting, to be quite honest. Um, I think also checking my motivation about why I was telling my story. Because when I first was widowed, it became my identity, partially because it was really public and some family stuff that became, it went from being something we handled as a family to becoming Mm. uh, something that was covered in the media, newspapers, TV. Uh, That took it, you know, to a next level um, instead of us handling it within the confines of our family. Um, So that it, it... suddenly involved a lot of people and people had a lot of opinions and I had a child to protect. And so that became, I became paranoid and I experienced panic attacks and I had a lot of pressure on myself to only leave my house when I felt like I could go someplace where I could put on the face that would appease most of the people for most of the time. Um, to keep them from cracking Mm. what was already fragile. Um, There was just a lot of hiding. I was hiding a lot, and I was only telling part of the story. Uh, I was only willing to stop at a certain point, but inside I I was imploding, really. I really was struggling. In my second marriage, I hit a place where my 11-year-old, my son was 11 at the time, and he just really wanted to spend as much time away from home as possible. And when I sat him down to ask him what that was about and Mm. why, because I was starting, it was really getting my feelings hurt. He shared with me that he didn't enjoy spending time with me, that he didn't notice me laughing anymore, and that that made it, difficult for him to want to be at home. And when I heard that, because I've always told him Mm. who we are at home is who we really are. And so since he was seeing me at home (laughs) and seeing how depressed I was and how unable I was to really even have the energy to lift the mask, to present myself someplace, you know, some in, in a different place and whole and healthy and strong and together Um, I, I had to trust him. I had to trust that voice. And so for a long time, it's been about, uh, shape-shifting. I used to call it shape-shifting where I have to change who I was and my level of grief and stress and strengths and my opinion to serve whoever was sitting before me. Because one thing I know for sure is the, our Western culture is not 
which really mm-hmm. don't have any idea how to deal with grief in a way that allows people to to break apart and sit with them until they get put, put back together in whatever way, shape, or form that they need to. We just so want to control the outcome and make it go quickly. And we project our meaning in, of, of what someone is grieving and how we think we would do it onto this person who's already under so much weight and pressure. And so I think for years I spent time doing that, trying to please people, trying to make Mm -hmm. myself tolerable in my grief. So if I could just get on with my life and remarry and make it look good, then people, I would be back in the married club. Because when you're widowed, you get kicked out of the married club quick. People get uncomfortable. They don't want to spend time with you. They, I don't know what it is. I hope I'm never like this for a friend who loses their husband. But you don't stop being my friend just because the four, there's no more four of us. We're going to find a way to make sure that you feel like you still are safe and and in this space with us. Um, Anyway, it's, it's a journey. It's hard. It's hard work. And only in the last three or four years when I had to be alone and like myself and, and just be mm-hmm. honest, like here, these I'm quirky. I know everyone's quirky, but I'm quirky. And so when I started owning my quirk, the way I dress, sometimes the way I do my hair, uh, the fact that I would rather pass up most big events with loud music and, and a bunch of strangers that are going to talk about the weather and other things that I really just have no interest in. Interest in. I would rather skip that to stay home in my very controlled, cozy apartment and sip wine and do me than to be out and about. Um, that has been just owning that has been really good. People still are shocked when I tell them I'm an introvert, but I uh, mm-hmm. I really am. And so when I started owning who I really am. And responding in that way, setting boundaries around who I really am, it started to attract people who could handle that for me. I hope that answered the question. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Recently, I've been really learning more about boundaries and setting boundaries that are healthy for me and healthy for um, the way that I interact with people. And so you just brought that up and and starting to realize as you as you went about your life and and took on this role as shapeshifter and people pleaser eventually you had to realize at some point that that wasn't working for you anymore and you you had to set some boundaries for yourself so how did you how did you navigate that That's a good question. I was really good at when I was an educator, when I was a teacher and an assistant principal, I was really confident about why my students needed boundaries. I just saw their night and day when they had a teacher that had clear boundaries and that executed the consequences or the rewards based upon whether or not they adhere to the boundaries or not. And those who, you know, were loose and inconsistent about their boundaries, but they talked about them mm-hmm. and how kids behaved and how parents behaved as well. I saw so much 
confidence and um, peace around clearly stated, consistently executed boundaries for my students. But I did not have them for myself. I had them for my son. I mean, my son, like I could look at him a certain way and he knew what the boundary was that he might be attempting to cross. You know, like he just, but when it came to myself, having those boundaries with adults, I was just, I was, was they say gobsmacked? <laughs> I was confused. I was like, how does this apply for people who are in a, uh, a role of authority, positions of authority? Or even sometimes my peers who are seemingly more comfortable sharing what they think and not caring, quote unquote, not caring about what other people think. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was actually making myself sick because I was attracting people who seemingly knew they would never admit it, but I was attracting people to myself who seemingly knew that they could take advantage of me. Mm. And somehow it would still be my fault, if that makes any sense. So in relationships, friendships, relationships, work environment, I was the person who was willing to state my boundaries, but everyone seemed to know that they were, my boundaries were a low priority, that they didn't have to take me too seriously. Mm. And so... I think it got to a place where I realized that I was I was part of the problem and that I was fearful of losing people's favor that I had to put shut that down. I had to say, okay, I'm not going to apologize if I haven't done anything to apologize for. I if I status a boundary, then I'm going to stick to that boundary. And there were some hit or misses, but for the most part, once I started practicing that on a consistent basis, people who felt more comfortable taking advantage, they left, they walked out and it hurt. But I see now that that was what needed to happen so that I could make more space for those who respect my boundaries. Mm -hmm. It's not even a question for them. So I have more people in my life now who respect my boundaries, respect me for my boundaries, ask me how they can put those boundaries in place. And, and I'm able to help them now because I adhere to my boundaries. I just had a situation yesterday where I said, I'm not going to do this after all. I was going to do something. And then I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this after all. I had been on the the fence and the person kind of went above, they went to the person above them to have that person call me and ask me, Hmm. hey, you know, I talked to so-and-so and they said that you, you know, you might be able to come in, so on and so forth. Would you be able to come in and cover? And I said, yeah, I mean... I guess I could get up and make that happen. I'm completely jet lagged. I don't feel good. I shouldn't be doing anything but laying in bed and taking a day of rest. I tell this person, yes, I'll come in. Sure, sure, sure. I'll do it. And then something tells me to call one of my people. I have a very small people list. Mm. So I called my husband at work 
he's doing all kinds of important things, but he makes time for me. And I call him and I say, this is what happened. What do you think? And he's like, your health is important. And I said, okay, so if I tell this person no, are we willing to ride out the consequences, the potential consequences of my saying no? And he said, we absolutely are. And it will tell you a lot about this person or these people when you go back and tell them no. Mm-hmm. So I got off the phone with him and I was going to text, but I thought, you know what? They called me. I'm going to call them back. I called, I explained, I said, you know what? I don't feel well enough to do that today. I'm not going to do that. Not, I'm sorry. Not, oh, I feel so bad. None of that. I just said that. And the person was like, okay, I hope you feel better. Period. Conversation over. That is so powerful. And I just, I could have cried. I was like, oh, this is what that's like. And I think sometimes we think about boundaries. We think about really big, huge, monumental circumstances that we have to put in place. But I think it's these really small places, Mm -hmm. you know, where you put in a boundary and you, it's tested and then you hold it up. And then another time it's tested and you hold it up and it becomes stronger and stronger. You don't even have to fight for that boundary anymore. Right. But it takes time and it takes honesty with yourself. Where is it that I am moving my boundaries to please people and why? Uh, But it's taken me years. Mm. So that just happened yesterday. (laughs) That I commend you for that. I'm glad that you stuck to your boundaries. And I I think it also is extremely important in that example, you, you mentioned your people, you know, Mm -hmm. the people that you trust and can confide in and and the people that you can turn to for advice Mm -hmm. and to have a group like that. So that when you are tempted to, to maybe cross your own boundary, you can dial a friend Mm -hmm. and and check in, you know, just, just to have that extra, that confirmation that no, you put that boundary there for a reason. Mm -hmm. I respect it. You should respect it. Yep. I think that is enormously helpful as well. And it's, you know, teaching people how to treat us. You know, they don't know mm-hmm. unless we show them, right? So they don't know unless we right. show. And so my people, I might, they fit on a post-it note, a small post-it note. Those, my, my people, mm-hmm. people, and they know my values. So I'm not calling someone who's going to agree with me and let me be sassy and put my hand on my hip and roll my neck and point my finger as much as I might want to. I'm not calling those people. Those people are not my people. They don't know my values. So those are the people I call right. that help me to understand that I'm growing. I'm, I'm working hard at this and they want to see me keep winning. So they're going to talk to me about my values and um, mm. encourage me to, to make hard decisions or what seem like hard decisions. And it gets easier, right? As you practice something, right? it gets easier. So that's right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I'm still in, in development. <laughs> As we all are. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you feel that in setting and maintaining boundaries for yourself did you feel that that provided a more stable example for your son? Because you mentioned that you had it, boundaries for him, but he wasn't seeing you practice the same. You know, that's a, a heart, a heart, um, hurt 
a heart hurt <laughs> for me. H e a r t heart hurt because mm. I gave my son permission to say anything to me as long as he said it with a respectful tone. Probably when he was six or seven. And when he said that to me, I knew he had nothing to gain from that and that it had to be hard for him to say that to me. Mm -hmm. But it still took me a good four or five years to get, to figure out what my boundaries were and to start making some steps toward putting them into place and practicing them. So it was not overnight. And Mm -hmm. it was hard. It was really, really hard to do that. There's just a fear. There's this fear of if I don't do it the way people say that it works or that it seems like it works for other people, Mm -hmm. then even if I lose this thing that isn't really that great, I'm left with nothing and I don't want to be left with nothing. Even though now, you know, with 2020 hindsight, I now know that it's better to be with nothing than to be with something that doesn't serve you well. Mm-hmm. In the moment, that's how abuse works. That's how um, we settle for less. It's because we don't believe that being alone or being without the thing that's hurting or harming us deep within our soul is better, is you know, is, is worse than being alone and really figuring out who we really are. It's scary. It's terrifying. Mm, I think it's why a lot of us don't leave. We don't leave horrible situations because at least we know who we are and what to expect in the situation we're in, no matter how bad it is. Mm-hmm. And it requires setting boundaries. It requires courage. But it also, before you can even set a boundary, you you have to know enough about yourself to know what kind of boundary you need to have in place. And I hadn't taken enough time to do that. I hadn't been confident enough to say, you know what, this is is a boundary for me that I'm going to keep bringing up until it's it's addressed. I'm going to keep Mm -hmm. circling back to this until you acknowledge that this is something I'm saying to you and needs to be addressed. But I just, it, it dawns, it just uh, surprises me often when I think about who I was showing up in that second marriage and mm-hmm. who I am today. And it really, a lot of it is about knowing and loving the woman that I am and not being ashamed of that. That is everything. That is everything. So let's see, how do I phrase this? What were the biggest lessons that you learned in, in parenting your son without his father? Hmm. Well, without going into too much detail, I'll tell you his father was not perfect. And he was not going to be winning any medals for husband of the year (laughs) or the decade that we were married. So that complicated my grief, which confused my son. 
I never, ever wanted to be a stereotype either. You know, I am very conscientious of what a Black woman with a child by herself looks like to the world. Mm -hmm. And I think I was angry that I had been put in this position because people don't necessarily wait to hear all of why you're in your situation before they make a judgment about it. So I was Mm. very aware that being in the community we lived in, many people understood why I was single or widowed. But when we would travel or venture into new uh, places or spaces, people would look at me and I felt like judge a lot. That's what it felt like. No, there's another black Mm -hmm. woman with a a baby by herself. Anyway. um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of my parenting was from the place and perspective of I've got your back. And I do remember him asking me to promise me, promise him that I would never die. And I think that that mm. was a pivotal moment in our, in our relationship. Because I, I can't promise that. I can't promise that. Right. I'd like to, but I remember telling him that I couldn't promise that to him, but that I was going to do everything that I could to make sure that he was prepared for whatever life God had planned for him, which meant you need to wash your own clothes. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, need, you need to take on some responsibility around here. Um, there are no maids here, although I did have cleaning help. I did pay a clean a maid. I did. I had a maid. Uh, he still needed to you know, be responsible and know how things were cleaned, and he needed to learn how to cook some meals, and he, uh, he needed to know that I was available for him. So I think the pivotal thing that my son would get spankings for, the the, the pivotal, like the, I don't know if pivotal is the right word, the anchor in our relationship was truth. So Mm. I hated when my kid would lie to me. Even those like little kid lies where I didn't do it when I'm, I'm sure you did do it. And, you know, I have evidence that you did it. I don't, that's Mm -hmm. a whooping. That's a spanking. Because for me, I felt like you and I are the only two people that we can really count on. We're the only two people that understand our situation. We're the only two people that understand this grief from the inside. If we can't tell each other the truth, then we're not going to be able to have each other's backs. And I hate showing up in a situation where I think I know all of the pieces of the puzzle and trying to put the puzzle together only to find out that someone replaced a piece with a dishonest, you know, piece or a piece that doesn't belong Mm -hmm. or to try to to convince me to have their back. I'm a pretty loyal person. So I tend to be one that's willing to take off her earrings and go in for the people I love before I have all the facts. (laughs) So I really would prefer that you tell me the truth (laughs) before I get in there and get (laughs) myself into some trouble. But um, the big thing for, for me in my parenting with my son was I needed him to know that he could tell me anything and really tried to foster that, you know, we didn't, there's no headphones in the car or, um, you know, I had a chair. I still have this chair. It's in my room now. It's in our bedroom now, but I bought this, this chair from a couple of girlfriends who had an antique shop shop in, in one of their garages (laughs) It was like 20 bucks and it's this vintage chair and I put it in my bedroom and he would come and sit in that chair, usually late at night, and he would share his heart with me. 
I just thought everybody's kids did that. But I mean, I was tired, but that's when he wanted to talk. So I would listen and uh, just make myself available and try not to judge what he's been through. Because what these kids are going through these days are very different than high school. When I was in high school, is I don't, we don't do them any service when we tell them we know exactly what they're going through because we don't, we really just don't. Mm-hmm. But I made myself available to him, asked a lot of questions, and I tried to share honestly with him about some of the ways that I, I got it wrong, you know, age appropriate. You know, like I wasn't sharing high school stories with my (laughs) eight-year-old. But when he was in high school, there were a few things that I could share with him about how I got it wrong. And my son has seen me fall down. He's seen me make mistakes. He's seen me, my son has seen me drunk. I'm not proud of that, but he's seen me out of control. And so I've had to be honest with him about where that comes from. and. it's amazing how that's paid off because at 19, the things that he's willing to talk with me, and I'm sure he doesn't tell me everything, but some of the things that he tells me, I'm like, oh my gosh, my kid's talking to me. So mm. it's powerful. Very, so special. But it is. I mean, it sounds like you, you really made it very clear to him that what you value is honesty and that what you value is the relationship that you two have together because it could, it can never be duplicated. Mm -hmm. So how has your relationship evolved? Because now as an empty nester, he's no longer within your own roof. (laughs) Yeah, he's not. And it's interesting too. I, I will say that just to go back to when he was a preteen and then a teenager, mm-hmm. he he's a very charismatic young man. And so he seemed drawn to families that had a lot going on and where the dad was seemingly present, where he got to watch the relationship between the mom and the dad. And I just think he was like gathering research, like what could it look like? What could it be like? And I got my feelings hurt a lot, but I knew he needed to do that. So I made space for him to do that. We traveled a lot together, so we had our time, but it really hurt for a long time to feel like he was moving away from me. Um, Mm. So when my husband and I got married, my son lived with us for the first six months of our marriage, which is kind of hard if you think about it for newlyweds to have an adult there. Right, right. But he was getting really comfortable and I love my kid and my husband knew that we were a package deal, but even I was like, okay, I'm not a yeller, but I've repeated myself about some things that make you seem to think that you have a maid here and that's not working out for me. So we actually created a contract (laughs) and uh, literally if I had to remind him of anything, it had a dollar equivalent to it. So if you couldn't put your dish in the dishwasher, but you put it on the sink, like some fairy was going to come and put it in, you know, while you were sleeping, that was like $20. And and they were intentionally high prices for the reason to motivate him to put his dishes in the dishwasher without having to be told. And Mm -hmm. um, there came a time where I had like a $60 bill, if you will. 
that he had mm-hmm. to stop at the ATM and bring us $60. <laughs> and he moved out about five weeks later. <laughs> but, okay. um, but it's good because that same young man who was getting comfortable here, he misses his mama. So he came and stayed with us last week, Thursday. And I told him, we're going to do old people stuff. We're going to eat dinner early. (laughs) We're going to juice. We're going to go for a walk. We're going to hang out and watch movies. And he's like, I'm here for it. So he has been our biggest supporter. You know, I mean, nobody wants to be like, hey, I've been getting married for a third time. But you do want your child or your children to be supportive and love the person that you're entering this covenant with. And Mm -hmm. our relationship is so good that when I'm out of town, the two of them spend time together. If I'm at book club, my husband helped my son with his taxes or my husband actually helped my son move into his apartment while I was at a girl's weekend. (laughs) Like they just, they, I'm there, but I'm not there and they don't need me because they have their own kind of relationship that they're developing. And my son has written us beautiful Christmas cards and birthday cards, commending our relationship and telling us that he's holding out for something similar, which is, Mm. I think, incredibly encouraging because I felt like I had damaged him beyond repair with the last marriage that I was in. But he's, he talks to me. I give him his space. He trusts me. He asks me advice. He tells me the truth. Um, we get time together. He's just, it's remarkable to look across the table. I took him out to dinner maybe five, six weeks ago, Got him, bought him a big steak and just listened to him talk. And I just sat there looking at this young man thinking, wow, like this, this is happening. Like this is, this is what you work for. You want your mm. kids to want to spend time with you and share their life with yeah. you. And He's just talking and he's, he's listening and he's feeling empathetic and he's asking me questions and it's amazing. He's not perfect. He sometimes is a chucklehead, but he is, <laughs> <laughs> he is, he, it's a delight. It's, I, I get teary eyed thinking about what it should have been like considering our circumstances because a lot of kids don't get through such a huge loss without Mm -hmm. doing some really incredibly hurtful and foolish things. And so I just, I'm grateful that our relationship is intact. Really grateful. Mm. That's amazing. It, It makes me think. And of course at this stage with my son, being almost two and needing very hands-on parenting, very mm-hmm. like constant supervision um, to hear you speak about the flip side um, and how that can pay off mm-hmm. and be, and feel so rewarding. It's, it's very encouraging. So I think in early motherhood, it can seem like I just, I'm not really sure why I'm doing this. Like, why it feels like <laughs> mm-hmm. everything I say to you goes mm-hmm. in one ear and out the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, that's not true. It's not true. What we're doing is 
impactful and it matters. It does. And I will tell you this, this is something I wish someone had told me, but the time and energy that you put in at the toddler, five, six, seven-year-old stage, that seems mm-hmm. exhausting, especially the two, three, four-year-old. It was exhausting. And and I thought that I was done, like I had earned something, you know, like I'd earned some space to rest and, and let down my guard. And at five, six, seven, eight years old, he became this personality that I'm like, I like this person that I'm getting to know. Mm. And so I, I looked at him as a person. And I often, I often prayed, probably especially after Chad died, I prayed more about my son's future uh, then than I probably would have if Chad had, had, had lived. But I um, prayed a lot for who he would become. And so because I was constantly thinking about the man, the husband, the father he would become, it shaped how I parented him in the five, six, seven, eight-year-old. That toddler thing, though, was kind of crazy for me. But then (laughs) it was just rough. Like, oh, don't say no because they'll repeat no. I'm like, well, I just want him to stop doing that. So I'm just the the shortest word that I know is how to say is no. But um, like really just talking to them and drawing them out as a human being and and treating them like this person that you could see down the road, that was helpful. And then what I really Mm. wish someone had told me was not to exert all of my energy trying to dress up my child or present my child in these early years and put all of my energy and focus there and to make every effort from 11, 12, 13 into their 18 and graduating from high school into college to make myself completely emotionally available for this person because Mm -hmm. they need you more at the preteen teen age than they did at the toddler age. People often, in my opinion, people often put so much more time on the front end and they forget that they need to put either just as much, if not more time on the back end because those Mm. hormones, they're developing, they're so influenced by what they see in the media their phones, Mm -hmm. the people at school, their peers, their peers. Yes. And they need to know that the person who has parented them and invested all this front end time on them is consistent and it's going to be there and available to them. I wish, and and I learned it in the moment and I'm so glad I didn't miss the opportunity. Um, I really wanted to pursue becoming a superintendent. And I was on track to become a principal and I was, I was going to go back to school to become a superintendent. Then I asked my son one day, what do you think about that? Do you think I should apply? It was just the two of us and he mm-hmm. paused for a moment. And he said, mom, I think you'd be really great at that, but I think I'd never see you. And you think about that. I don't think he was asking me not to, to apply, but he, that was right. some wisdom. That was wisdom. And so I, I do feel like I missed out on something, but I also believe wholeheartedly a thousand percent that I invested in the right thing, which is my relationship with my son. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you for that. that You're welcome. I think it, it can be easy to lose sight of the man that my son is one day going to be. 
Um, yes. Because the toddler age, you know, that even the newborn into toddler and like early childhood phase is so demanding mm-hmm. of my attention and my time. And I have to constantly be on guard and make sure he's not like about to stick something in the socket or put something <laughs> right. in his mouth, you know, mm-hmm. but that's all, that's all shifting and evolving. And he's not always going to be this person. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually was something that shocked me. <laughs> believe it or not, about motherhood Mm -hmm. was realizing that all my life as a young child and then young woman fantasizing about becoming a mother, I always had in my head that I was going to have a baby. I wanted to have a baby, right? And Mm -hmm. that phrase is so – it's so so limiting because – you have a baby and that baby turns into a toddler and the toddler turns into a child and the child turns into a teenager and so on and forth, so forth. And I had forgotten that, you know, I had a baby and then I was like, okay, now, now what? Like this baby right. is now yeah. walking and talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. I, I forgot that that was going to be the case. And I know it sounds somewhat trivial, but Mm-mm. just, I think it can be so easy to get caught up in the moment, which is good because you do want to be present in what's happening in the here and now, but to have some inkling, some notion of what the long game is, is mm-hmm. truly important. That's good. The long game. It's true. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when yes. I picked up on that. I don't know if watching my husband die really shook me out of the everything is right now because that's what I was living. You know, I was living, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pursuing my career and I'm, I'm, I'm taking on more, more responsibility at work and I'm a lead for my team and I have eight teachers looking up to me and I have this and I have this going on and that stuff was really important to me. It was really important to me until I got a phone call that my life was going to change. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I look back on that now and there's some heartache to that, but there are also some things my son and I will, he would tell you, we've had this conversation multiple times in the last three or four years. We wish that we didn't have to go through what we went through, but if we had Chad back, he would have to adjust to the life we get to live now rather than whatever the life would have been then because we've grown exponentially having Mm -hmm. to figure things out and understand that this life is, it's, it's some of it, you know, it's some of the story. It's not all of the story. And sometimes I feel like we do all of this hustling and working and, and fighting to live this life as if it's the only story, but the long game is, you know, I'm an educator at heart. And I was losing sight of the fact that my son isn't, he's not going to be the top. He's not, he was not going to be the valedictorian. The kid could barely remember that he was supposed to turn in his homework. Smart kid, brilliant kid. Mm -hmm. But I would go to parent teacher conferences and they'd be like, well, you know, he's not doing well because he doesn't turn in assignments. And he would say, oh, you wanted me to turn that in? (laughs) And, Mm. you know, my hand to my head is like, dude, you're here all day. Like, I'm sure the teacher has probably said multiple times, go ahead and turn that in and told you where to put it. 
and some of that is boys, but I would get so frustrated. And then I just sat back and I thought to myself, well, first of all, this is total aside and people may completely disagree with me, but I don't think schools are built for boys in the way that they function and think and process things. So mm-hmm. um, that's a whole nother <laughs> conversation. Um, but mm-hmm. I was able to sit back and tell myself, like, this really isn't set up for him. Second, my kid, I, I really want my kid to develop his character more than be the top X, Y, Z. So mm-hmm. not only do I not want you to have behavior problems with my child, but I want you to see his heart. He's a sweet young boy. He's a, he's a loving kind person. And if I go to a parent teacher conference and that's what you tell me, then we are, we're good. We're really good. You can't be failing, but I, it just, it was me again, having to, to retain, to change, you know, my perspective and what was important. So. Sorry about that. That's okay. (laughs) Okay. Come here. He's so talkative. So, I mean, we're, he is very talkative. He should be going to bed very soon. But um, and I have time if you have a couple more questions. So, okay, I do. Okay, so this is something that you have been more vocal about, um, on social media, which I follow mm-hmm. you there. When we'll talk about where people can find you in a sec, but okay, tell me more about menopause. This is oh. something that you've been <laughs> alluding to even in this conversation. So, oh. so what comes up when you hear that word? Okay, so I'm evolving, but I was mad about menopause. Let me just tell you. I was also okay. mad about turning 40, partly because I feel like my 30s were so difficult that my four, turning 40 could have been something to celebrate, but it really actually just kind of snuck up on me. You know, I had all these, most of the trauma in my life happened in my 30s. So when I turned 40, mm-hmm. I wasn't, I don't want to celebrate that. I want to like, I want a a year between 39 and 40 so I can get myself together and be excited about 40. So made it through 40, started to embrace it and see that there were benefits and just wonderful things about aging and, and getting older. There really are, really are some amazing things, gems from getting to be in your forties. And then I, um, got really sick, just severe anemia and, um, needed to have a hysterectomy. And Mm, the hysterectomy was so important that they didn't spend very much time talking to me about the potential side effects that come or the symptoms that come from menopause. So once you Mm -hmm. have all of your female organs removed, you will be entering into menopause. The symptoms are basically you just don't know. It's like, just like you don't know exactly how a pregnancy will go for each woman. You just don't know how menopause will go for each woman, which frustrates me uh, because I feel like menopause is such a shameful stage to be in because women don't talk about it. Like, how did I get to this phase and not know that I'm going to be in a situation where I'm going to sweat all night and want to jerk the wheel most of the day <laughs> driving <laughs> and that there's a menopause fog where I'm going to be talking and not be able to finish my sentence 
and that I don't want to put toxins in my body, but I also feel like for the first time in my life, I know who I am and I'm forceful and powerful and I am, I like myself and I feel, feel like I have value to add to the women and the people that I interact with, but my body doesn't want to cooperate. It's a ripoff. Mm. It feels like a ripoff. And so I am adjusting to what that means and what that looks like and learning, you know, the best way to respond and for me and my body, which is a journey. There's no straight line that, oh, Regina, okay, now that you're in menopause and you feel better, this is what works and what doesn't work. It affects your hair. It affects your teeth. It affects, it's just like so many side effects to this whole thing. But Every woman who gets to age is going to yes. ride up against this. And so I'm just trying not to be angry about it. Um, but I am frustrated that this isn't a conversation mm-hmm. with my aunt and my mother and my other aunts and other women who I look up to and respect, who I now know were fanning themselves, not because they were a little warm. But they were having <laughs> hot flashes, you know. Why? Didn't right. They, why didn't they talk to me about it? Like, and why didn't I think to ask about it? What? Why isn't there a better b- bridge between full-on menopause and the women who will be approaching that? I uh, or those that are of us that are in menopause, and those of you that are in toddler land, or wanting to have babies. Like what if we had a better arc between the two that I don't need you to feel my pain while you're there, but I just want to prepare you that there's some things that you can be doing now to get ready for this season. Ooh. So it's not such a shock when it, yes. when it happens. Cause I'm, I was salty. <laughs> I really was. I was salty. I'm getting better, but I was salty. <laughs> I can understand. I mean, I mean, not, I can't understand menopause from like a first person perspective because I have not experienced that yet, but I can understand like being frustrated at the fact that there is no conversation happening around something that women will experience. Like it is an inevitability as you age as a woman, (laughs) you will approach menopause. And yet I have personally not really had any conversations except for the ones I've had with you about mm-hmm. what that can look like. Yeah. So what what are your your tips? Because you mentioned just a, a moment ago sure. saying that you wish that you could kind of bridge that gap and, and start to prepare young women for right. their futures. Like what what are some things that you would share with women who are in the beginning stages of their menstrual cycle? That's so, so good. So that they're not so taken aback when they when they get to the other side. Well, first, know your body. You are the best advocate for your body. You have to know your body. Secondly, mm. make sure that before you put any chemical in your body that you know what it is. Mm. Three, as soon as you don't feel like something is working for you, stop taking it. it you don't have to explain it to anyone. You don't have to justify it to anyone, but if something's not working for you, if it's making your symptoms worse, if it's making you break out, if it's making you 
rageful. <laughs> you just stop mm-hmm. it. Just stop doing that. Give yourself permission to navigate this passage, this uh, part of the, the road to womanhood, how mm-hmm. you need to, to do that. Eating well, exercising. Uh, I think we are definitely still in a place in our society where we think that our 20s you know, makes us a little, what's the word? <laughs> um, we're, we, we aren't going to deal with those old lady issues. I mean, to the point mm. where some of us are in our 20s and we're dying our hair silver. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. When you get gray hair and it comes naturally, it's not easy. <laughs> they're squiggly and they point out in different directions and they're coarse and don't rush the aging process. Be in the age you are, but know your body. Know who you are. Um, spend time with women who are in a different season and age than you are. I think that that so offers important. some humanity to what may come for you. Because it, I will say, as frustrating as it is to be in menopause, as much as it took me by surprise, I have some wisdom on me that I just would love to share with younger women about things, just things to think about, things to consider. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't shock you when you get to this place, but it's an right. honor to have lived to be 46 years old, you know, because yeah. I watched someone die at 33, sat next to their bed and watched them pass away. And so mm. age is not the enemy. It's a gift. There's some some real amazing gifts that come with being able to be older, but I think a better way to handle it would be just to like, no, really know your body, know how your body works, know what it responds to, know what you're, know what stress looks like on you, know what um, overwhelm looks like on you, know who you really are, know when you need to take a break. And know when the mm-hmm. world is telling you what a woman should look like versus what you know you're supposed to show up as a woman. So we're tough. You know, we're, we're powerful women, especially, especially as mothers. I think there's just something about what we have to be able to do as a mother. <laughs> but I just, oh, yeah. I think we just, the conversation just, Tie yourself to people who are further down the road than you are and listen to what they have to say. Mm. Amen. Oh, thank you so much, Regina. I really appreciate this conversation. I mean, it's important to me in hosting this podcast that I have conversations with women of all ages and all stages of life for this exact reason, because we can learn so much from each other. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that we need to be anxious or ready mm-hmm. to um, to get to that next that next stage, right. but just to know that there are people who are living there in that in that next stage, and and they're making it through. They're rolling with the punches, and they're willing to share how they've done it. it can be so so valuable. Um, yeah. Just to know that you're not alone in in what you're experiencing, and and you can kind of get your mind prepared for for what's to come that is 
that's just so important to me. That's really the um, the underlying feeling as to why I wanted to start this podcast. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is a treat. You're welcome. So before <laughs> we wrap up, where can people find you? People can find me on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram, my favorite platform. Uh, it's Instagram <laughs> at Regina Sather. That's where you can find me. Perfect. Yay. 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 <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother. And then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time, I'm your host, Maurice Young.